We'd like to give a special thanks to Astro Agency, the executive producers of Space in 60. They provide strategic marketing support exclusively for the space sector. Strategic because their team have all the vast experience working within space companies are setting them up. So they specialize in getting technical messaging and brand positioning just right, as well as having the industry connections to organize podcasts just like this one and their space bar webinars, which we'd highly recommend for new space networking. Check Astro Agency out on social media. They're in all the usual places. And welcome back to another episode of Space and 60. This week you have Andrew and Clint. Unfortunately, our buddy Chad has taken the day off. I think he got stuck with some parental duties, which does happen when you're a parent. It does. I think we all know the duties. We're all, I'd love to call us young professionals, but I don't think we fit that bill of young or professional anymore. Definitely not professional. I'm going to keep the young title. (laughs) But yeah, this is, man, this has been a really amazing week or a couple of weeks actually in the space industry. And it might be overdone. It might be over talked about, but this last week I went to the inspiration for launch. Uh, So a little over a week ago, actually, by the time this podcast goes out. And I have to say, it's one of the most amazing experiences, not because it was just so different as as a launch, but the fact that this was a totally civilian event just blew me away. It is pretty awesome to see the industry getting to this place. Finally, science fiction is becoming reality. Yep. You know, and one of the things that I saw this week, there were some people that were commenting about how this flies in the face of everything that our astronauts, the 500 and some people who have trained hard to go to space, that it flies in the face of everything that they've spent their life doing. But I actually, I read a, I read a quote this week that I think really says it a lot better than that, that rather than flying in the face of everything that these people have worked toward, it's the, it's the capstone of everything that these people have worked toward. It's the, it's yeah, you said it, it's the capstone. I mean, at the end of the day, astronauts are still professionals. They're still going out there. They're still the cutting edge, taking all the risk, paving the way for, for the rest of us that will never, ever change a test pilot is is always going to be a test pilot and there's always going to be new planes new new craft to to check out before the rest of us follow in their footsteps you know and one of the things i loved about this mission you know every almost every interview i've seen with elon musk about space not tesla but but about space is why do we have all of these billionaires out there throwing around money to go to space and and you know do something that they enjoy and is only for them when they could be spending that money to solve problems on earth. And, you know, this mission was something that I thought coupled really well with solving problems on earth with a big fundraiser for St. Jude. I think they raised over $200 million for St. Jude and, and solve working to solve problems here on earth with a, a really worthy cause. But at the same time, I think that Elon's quote was more important than just the the stated mission was that 
you know, he believes we should be spending roughly 1% of our, of our national economy on solving problems and spacefaring activities and the other 99% of solving problems here on earth. You know, I don't think that's a stretch. And we, we see the public generally focusing on what happens with that 1%, but not seeing what the other 99% does and all of the problems that today are solved with space technology. I, I think a lot of that goes unnoticed. At the end of the day, you always need to have hope and inspiration to motivate yourself. And really, that's what this is all about. You know, and I would love to have Jared Isaacman on on here, but he's probably way too famous now to be on our podcast. But, you know, I love his story. And he was someone that was impatient to build based on his own narrative from the Netflix series for Inspiration4, from his own narrative that he just couldn't wait to make things happen on his own. He wasn't waiting for life to come to him. You know, when he built this great company, he supported a lot of great causes. And then he used that success in his life to do something that he's always wanted to do and always loved. But at the same time, spending two, you know, raising $200 million for a cause here on earth. I think all in all, this this mission is something that would be hard for anyone to dispute as as a great cause and a great adventure. And speaking of somebody that's been in a hurry to build a great company and and work and solve problems, big problems for good causes like our planet, our next guest, Steve Lee, has done just that in creating his company and and working with Earth observation data. Yeah, I, I can't wait to meet Steve. And I was so glad to hear that he was coming on to the show from Astrosat. And they're solving some of the world's biggest problems. And so we look forward to visiting with Steve. And we have Steve. Steve, thanks for joining us on Space in 60. It's great to have you. It's lovely to be here. Hello. It's great to have another guest from the great land of Scotland. And, you know, I've noticed that the space industry is really starting to boom in Scotland. So we're so anxious to hear about your past and how you've gotten into the industry and and what's going on in your part of the world. Yeah, there's a lot going on. It's a strange thing, Scotland. You can get tablet, tartan and rockets and earth observation and all that stuff. Wild hangovers if you do work over here. I think that's what drives people to come and work here, to be honest. It's the party <laughs> lifestyle. It's the inspiration that comes with hangovers. Well, you've definitely inspired my drink of choice for today's show. As you can see, we're celebrating your presence with scotch. Oh, really? So that there, there's a bilateral deal because I've got uh, Jack Daniels. So there oh. you have it. You're having scotch <laughs> and I'm having a bourbon. I was so afraid you were going to tell me you were drinking Budweiser. Mm-mm. I'm not that bad. <laughs> Only Americans drink Budweiser. That's true. And and a few from uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, right? Mm-mm. No way, Jose. Not strong enough. The thing I'm missing the most right now, jumping into the pandemic thing, is being in America. It's my favorite place to be. I studied in America and I'm itching to go. So they've just opened up the flight corridor in November. And I reckon I'll be hanging outside of that airport. Be the first to go. Can't wait. Yeah, that'll be great. Uh, it'll be great to have things open again. I did hear that we've pretty much opened everything except to Canada. Maybe Canada's still blocked, but the rest of the world, it's it's open season. Come on in. And when you say America, do you actually mean the U.S. or do you mean Canada? Oh, my Lord. Here we go. We're getting political already. <laughs> well, I studied in California, but my 
favorite place on the planet is Nashville because of my old history. And I feel the most comfortable in Boston, Massachusetts. So, yeah, that bit of America. <laughs> so how, how does that work? You studied in California. You love Nashville. But out of those two places, Boston's the, the one you, you want to call home? Yeah, it's it's just all part of my history, really. I mean, I, I studied astrophysics in Edinburgh University and astronautics and Cranfield University. But in between, I, I, I did a, a season in Caltech when I was a very young boy. So, you know, I, I love that experience in the West Coast. But then when I finished my degrees, I, I left the space industry for a long time and became a musician and a songwriter. So then Nashville was the place to be. And then when I decided that I was getting too bad at writing songs and too old to have no responsibility and started going back to physics and started the company, a lot of my early experience as an entrepreneur happened in Boston. So those are the three little stepping stones. I don't know if that explains it, but that's the story. <laughs> it's a good story. It's, you know, we all have these winding paths, I think, into the space industry. Some of us come, well, maybe some of us come directly through the path of their studies. And some of us have come in from the side door and some from the back door and we we somehow make it in and, and make it work. But it's always cool to hear the story, you know, from your education. And then you said you started a business. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'll, I don't know, let's go back to the start for, for the listeners in, in a galaxy far, far away. Caltech a long time ago <laughs> so as a young man I, I was the super geek um went into astrophysics I was an electronics kind of geek and you know music plays quite a, a big part of my story so I was completely geeked up and studying astrophysics and physics and along the way I realized that I might want to be able to speak to women so I learned the guitar and became a musician at the same time and I had these two kind of conflicting bits of my career that went along but physics was really the thing that that, that got me going the most so when I graduated and gone to Caltech Caltech was a great experience for me in the sense of seeing the potential for being involved in space because 20 years ago there was none of that in the UK certainly in Scotland, which is a crazy thing to look back on right now. So NASA and Caltech and being in America studying kind of showed me the potential for it. But then, of course, I graduated and came back home and and there wasn't any of that going on. So I kind of gave up on it. And I was having a lot more fun being a musician. My music work had kind of gone in parallel with the studies. So I just did that for a while. I actually had a business in doing that and writing these songs and kind of getting up and going and was making money out of that. And I did that through my 20s. And it taught me an awful lot about entrepreneurism because you're making your own money as a songwriter or a, a singer. And you learn a lot about IP. You learn a lot about publishing. You learn a hell of a lot about what I actually do day to day these days. So I was doing that in my 20s, but I was losing my physics. And it's not a very wholesome life being a musician, I have to say. If any musicians get annoyed at me about saying that, then they're annoyed at themselves. It's just true. And I grew up a little bit, and I fell in love with a beautiful girl from Dublin, and we ended up starting family. 
and I just didn't want to be a musician anymore. So I learned an awful lot about business and the production of IP, the exploitation of IP, creativity. And I was losing my physics. So I thought, right, I've, I've got to get back to doing physics because I'm missing it. I'm just turning into, I'm going to end up some old bore in a bar with band stories that no one wants to speak to. I've ended up that person anyway, but I was trying not to be. <laughs> so before I lost all my physics that I'd studied for years, I saw the space industry kind of starting to turn into what it was in America. This was around about oh, nine, ten years ago. can't believe it was that long ago. And I thought, well, look, all these little kind of things I've picked up being a businessman and an entrepreneur. I've not lost my physics yet. I love space. Couldn't we in Scotland do the same thing that, that Elon was starting to do in America at the time? I remember I was walking across the street in Leith in Edinburgh, where my granddad was a docker his whole life. And I was really feeling in my gut I had to get back into physics and space. And I had this idea that I'd talked about years back in Boston, funnily enough. And I thought, that's it. I'm just going to start this company. I'm going to start an innovations lab in space. And there was, you know, Clyde Space was about two years behind us in starting up in, in Scotland. And it was doing amazing things. Craig was just setting the bar. And the downstream, the Earth observation part of it wasn't really discussed. So I thought, well, let's go for that. <laughs> and that was nine years ago when then I started it up. I knew how to start a business. I knew how to kind of get things going. Had great friends in Scottish Enterprise. And, well, that was the start. And the rest is, well, either going to be history or is history in the meeting. One of the things I always love to hear from the people that have made it in the space industry, because it really, it really speaks to who they are and, and what they've built is, you know, what kind of problems you love to solve? What types of problems are you solving with what you know how to do? I actually saw a quote on your website that just really got me. And it's every problem has a space solution. And uh, I often say that to Andrew, you're like a hammer looking for a nail, but that's what it made me think of, you know, but every problem has a space solution. What do you mean by that? Well, that's that's it, my friend. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. That that was that was kind of putting the A in the Beatles for me. That was just it hit me straight away. What I wanted to basically do was realize that the space entrepreneurism that I could bring to the world and build a band and a team around had nothing to do with space. It was infrastructure. It was just going out and finding out what is your problem and then finding a way to solve it with some element of space involved and when I kicked that gig off I, I thought we would end up being maybe a three or five man band probably a wee cottage industry a nice little consultancy and I thought it would be a good life for my growing family and I thought we would do some good and I thought that space would maybe solve about five to ten percent of any problem you know, would pull in some GPS, would pull in a little bit of satellite stuff, Earth observation satellite stuff. But what it ended up being was, you know, we've been about 30 to 40 strong 
70, 80% of our problem with space alone since then. So it kind of amazed me. And the nexus, the, the kind of the idea of the whole thing that was stuck in my head was basically to go out and solve problems because that's what I like to do. I like to, it's not the engineer or the physicist in me, it's more the, ugh, this sounds really trite, but it, it's the artist in me. It's the songwriters. If somebody says to me, give me something because that's a problem I've got, I just love to figure it out. And it's gone nuts. Like One of my happiest vindications of that every problem has a space solution that happened recently was when my crew turned around after we'd got involved in a COVID response. And they told me that we had a technology that was going to help mental illness so the tracking within the health sector of where there was dangers or hidden mental illness that the health services didn't know about and we figured that out using satellite data and at that point I thought well I wasn't joking when I said every problem is a space solution but it's really taken off. I think one of the interesting things that you said there is how it how it taps into your creativity and the artistry. And I think that's, at least for me, one of the things that resonates with Earth Observation is it's a data set. And a lot of the times you represent that data in visualizations or cartography. And there's a lot of artistry that goes into that. And and really that's a huge way of how we communicate that information back to the public or or back to the audience that's that's looking for help on those answers. Yeah, I mean, you said communication, and that's kind of what it is. So it isn't such a stretch to being a song guy and a singer to running this very extremely creative kind of muscle shows of the earth observation industry, which is what I like to kind of think we are. But it is that, it's that communication thing. So one of the things that Astrostat does really well, and my company does well, and a lot of my good friends in the industry that have got through the the last eight years of this explosive change and growth is one of the things is, is just speaking to normal human beings, right? Just people that go to work and do a job every day and doesn't matter. They've got, they don't have a clue what, you know, the right ascension is or how you launch a rocket. They don't have a clue about it, but, but they've got this need that you can fill with the stuff that comes from space. But, the key, we, we've got a hell of a lot of business analysts in AstroSat. And what they do is they speak to people, normal people, and they say to them, what is it you want? And they really figure out what they want. And then we've somehow got to give them a tune that they like to listen to and that they can play and interact with. It's sheer communication, and it's done best when it's done in the most creative way. I was going to ask, when you say you give them a tune to listen to, I mean... I don't think anybody's put a score to a visualized data set yet. So, you know, I'm thinking of you're looking at deforestation of the Amazon and cue the empire music <laughs> or reforestation yeah. and you got some happy stuff, right? Could be a lot of fun here. That's a really good idea. Now, now you, you're going to turn me into some kind of weird Pink Floyd album cover. If you keep going that way. <laughs> but I can, so we just deployed this. This, this this is the thing I love about scientific creativity. We, we just deployed this technology onto our platform, 
this kind of like catch-all platform that powers everything, that has, has done something beautifully spectral with um, geovectors, right? Like point data. And we played it through a time series for this Dubai Expo that's coming up that shows the flow of air pollution in Dubai if you run it through the pandemic and stuff. And it actually looks like a 3D sound wave. So yeah, maybe we'll maybe maybe Mike Oldfield needs to kind of get into space. We'll see what we can do. You might have just opened Pandora's box there, my friend. Oh well, it's, this could be fun. But I mean, in terms of interaction and the tune that that people want, is fundamentally what they want to be able to do is just interact. It's a UX challenge, a UI challenge. So space data on its own, a, a picture from space is extremely sexy at times like if you look at stuff that comes from ISI and the high res stuff it's really sexy but it's completely useless unless you analyze it so if you can turn it into something interactive you're going to find an audience or you're going to solve problems and that's the heart of having a business is if you're solving someone's problems they're more than likely to pay for it yeah so long as the visualizations uh are, are nice and fluid because i gotta say we just had an election here in Canada and some of the news agencies had, you know, all the polling results and all that, but some of those maps, man, they were clunky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the BBC's always been really good at that kind of stuff. Maybe that was a bit of an inspiration. We had this famous kind of election guy that used to run the election nights and they pioneered kind of computer vision so that he would walk about and stamp on things and it was really cool, but you know, the same kind of thing, I guess, you know, if people listening to this want to look into what we're doing, they can find it on the website. They should look at our colleagues that are doing cool stuff in Scotland too, in the data world. But a lot of our stuff is really visual and cool and interactive. And I think that's the key to this weird little bit of the space industry that we're in, which is downstream earth observation right now. It's the key to making that actually become something that people have in their pockets which is the only way we're going to make it or else we're, i'm going to be back writing rubbish songs in nashville <laughs> well you you've got to make it simple right because for the vast majority of the problems we're trying to solve we're not trying to solve those problems for other space people we're trying to solve those problems for the general public by using space-based technology and if they're not tuned in to how that technology works they're just not going to use it unless we make it simple and I think that's, it seems like that's the point you're trying to drive home. It definitely is. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going off, off point here a little bit and rambling, but that is exactly the point. You know, this, this, the, the utilization of our investment in space needs to be beyond the kind of ooh and ah of watching a rocket launch and needs to become something that is of great value to a hell of a lot of human beings on the planet. And when you say we are trying to do that, the bulk of the space industry working in the Earth observation world and even the launching world isn't actually trying to do that. There's only a few of us that are really being that rebellious and stupid and overly creative and going out of the industry and trying to do that. And we're one of them, and I'm really proud of that. But that is the challenge, is, is to do that effectively so that people start using and seeing the value in what, we've, what we're doing beyond just watching Branson float about in a tin can. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> I could be wrong. I totally agree. And, you know, I think that 
we're in a time within the industry when things are really starting to take off and explode. And it's sometimes it's tough to distinguish between those groups out there that are just raising money and those that are actually trying to solve a problem because you know we're in a we're in a boom within the industry but there's an awful lot of fundraising that's going on out there as opposed to actual problem solving oh man right you got me started sit back i mean i (laughs) this kind of again harks back to me feeling like i'm some kind of indie band Right, but we are definitely in that boom. I would argue that we're kind of past the boom phase right now. So I've got this kind of phrase that I use when I'm in a bad mood and I'm ranting and I'm feeling a bit jaded about fruit flies. I call this thing fruit flies. It's really cynical. It doesn't suit my kind of songwriting, happy-go-lucky stuff. But when I started up Astrosat, we were before the zeitgeist of space. Not your side of the planet, but certainly this side of the Atlantic, even ahead of where ESA was going. So when we started up along with other great companies, particularly Clyde Space in, in Scotland, we were seen as the entrepreneurs, right? And it was this zeitgeist industry, this, this new thing to get into. And we were entrepreneurs at that point in time because people started going, wow, space, you can make money out of it? And it's not just about NASA and all that stuff. Then everybody cottoned on and the money started to flow and the government attention started to flow. But all these guys were catching up with what the entrepreneurs had seen and didn't really understand it because they weren't from the art. They weren't musicians. They weren't astrophysicists, right? They didn't know really what they were doing, but they saw something to chase. So when they started pouring money in, and the entrepreneurs suddenly started saying, you're going the wrong way here. We became rebels for a while. And then as that's kind of grown, as that industry has been super invested in, and it's starting to show that it's not as quick at return as it should have been, people are starting to make excuses. And, and those of us that are kind of sticking with it and pushing through, we've gone from entrepreneur to rebels to just troublemakers. Because we're kind of fighting against this trend. But at our heart, we want the industry to succeed. That's really prevalent when it comes to the Earth observation, the downstream data kind of world. Rockets are still sexy to see. And whoever's going to start launching, you know, Rocket Lab's work and the stuff that Skyroar is doing is amazing over here. But the politicians and the investors love to see a rocket go up. We're kind of playing the long game over here. Where the fruit flies come in was that there was something that, happened that really frustrated me about six or seven years into this boom and we're almost 10 years old now so this was kind of in my middle age and i called it the fruit fly effect where what happened was people were having to justify the investment in the industry before there was any return so the kpi that they used the key performance indicator was the number of companies that were up and running but they were all just fruit flies they were like one man, two man bands that burst into life and live for a week or a day and then fizzle away. And I think the industry, when it comes to your comment about being in a boom, is very soon going to have to deal with the inevitable consolidation and retraction of that boom, where the fruit flies might all disappear. And we're going to have to finally actually do something and pay some taxes and give some return on that big investment. 
that was a bit of a rant. I think it's a great perspective. And, you know, when we do these shows, we always look for something, the topic that's just a little bit controversial. And I think, you know, for yourself, you probably wouldn't look at that as controversial. But when we're in a world of space companies who are better fundraisers than they are Earth observation companies or launch companies or lander companies, you know, I think that really to them or to their backers could seem controversial. And, you know, I, I hearken back to the comment we made at the, the beginning, a hammer looking for a nail. And I think a lot of the businesses that have spun up in this industry that have raised money are a hammer looking for a nail, looking for a problem to solve rather than building a company around the problems that you're going to solve. Yeah. I mean, I am a hammer looking for a nail, but, <laughs> but I'm a hard man is probably the kind of Scottish phrase. So I don't mind. I know I spent a lot of times running out of pubs in Glasgow after I played the wrong tune. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm more than willing to get in a fight if it's for the right reason. I've got a bit of a name as a troublemaker, but it's because I firmly believe in this industry and what it can do. So when I look at that nail that I just mentioned a minute ago and the controversy of it, I'm in a weird position. So we're, we're bootstrapped. And we're one of the only bootstrapped companies around. We don't have significant investors. Sure, we've got a lot of debt because of the pandemic, but you know we're basically a family company. So we don't really have to answer to anybody, which gives you freedom to behave like a, a rebel as much as you want. But I don't believe in a rebel without a cause. I want to hit that nail. I want to hit it until it's in that bit of wood. The thing I'm, I concern myself about within the industry right now and you made that point, is that if you look at this boom phase that happens after a zeitgeist, what I think is going to happen is there's going to be a lot of dead fruit flies on the ground, and they'll all be fine because they've done their bit, and they'll get to join, and they'll have a job, and they will still promote the industry. Only a few of us are going to be left having to finish it off. And what you're seeing right now is we're beyond the phase of big VC injection. We're in the world of flotation right now. So I'm wondering what's going to happen if some of the floated companies, the SPACs, the, the reverse flotations is what I used to call them, start to vertically integrate. And most of the flotations have happened in the upstream world. So the earth observation sub-industry, what's going to happen? Because the, the fruit flies are kind of gone. They're going or they're gone. There's only a few of us left. We're one of them. Tough, hard to get to, troublesome one. What's going to happen to those of us that are at that bleeding edge of enabling all the upstream floated companies' profits by actually doing the selling? Is there going to be consolidation? Are people going to start buying up the downstreamers, of which there ain't that many? Are the downstreamers actually going to start making money like we're starting to do at a big level and be in control of it all? I don't know. I don't know. At 10 years old in this industry and... That's the thing that I'm watching the closest. It could be the White Album, and it's just crap. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> the band might break up. Have you ever wondered how to get your company's latest news in front of a global space sector audience? Then get in touch with Room Space Journal. With a large digital and print audience focusing on space, astronautics, science, and the latest news and developments from the sector, Room Space Journal is a direct route to increasing brand awareness in space. For the latest space news and to download a media pack, visit the website at room.eu.com. 
at the risk of further propping open the lid of Pandora's box, I mean, I would love to go further down the path of the SPACs that are going on. We've seen some SPACs in the industry that have just been huge and, and outrageous. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are to go deeper on that one. I know, personally, some of the guys that have benefited from the SPACs. And I knew it was coming because, oddly enough, back in my music days, early AstroSat, the revolution of buying up rights into these shelf PLCs, reverse flotations on AIM was the big thing that used to happen 10 years ago. Won't make much sense to, to you guys over there, but what people were doing was making a quick buck out of having a, a floated company and buying up as much IP from royalties as they could and then bringing them out into the publishing world. It's a well-trodden model. And I kind of knew eventually it would happen in space. So I kind of saw these flotations, these reverse flotations happening or coming a while back. And I kind of guessed who was going to be the beneficiaries of it. And they've all done really well for now. So I'd, I'm not going to make a comment about how well they're going to go. If I was on their board, I would be consolidating and buying up vertically other companies with the cash that they've got right now. That would be my business plan. But copy it if you want or not. I have a unique perspective on it all because of being bootstrapped. So there's these SPAC companies and these floated kind of superstars of, of the space industry. They've never made any real money. And I have, but I haven't made much of it. But we've been profitable since we were three months old. So I have a very different perspective when it comes to valuation. And, and that is probably the most controversial I'll get because I, I, I don't like the Silicon Valley super valuation model. I do, maybe it's just because I'm a, a, a tight-ass Scottish grumpy guy, but <laughs> it's the money in your pocket that counts in, in the world I grew up in. You know, not what you're telling somebody's in your bank account. I don't know, but it's a different perspective. But if anybody's listening and wants advice, a, don't take it from me. B, if you do, hell mind you. C, I think these floated companies right now are going to get in trouble when they're not pulling the revenue in that they're projecting. And therefore, I think they're going to start buying up as many companies as possible that are the end revenue generating parts of their business. That's what I think. <laughs> So you think the strategy is buy them up, slim it down, and streamline it till the revenue fits the projection? I think the strategy has to be use the capital you've raised. Realize that the bit of the business that you're running right now, the upstream bit, is the cost part of the business and that you don't actually generate revenue and therefore vertically integrate and buy companies that you could turn into the revenue generating bit of your business. So... To not talk in circles, if you own a constellation of satellites that provide data, that costs you an awful lot. You were the first there. You've done a damn good job at getting yourself publicly traded. But you're going to have to create or buy the bit of that business that makes the money. And that's the downstream bit. So you've either got to create that transactional edge to what you do, or you're going to have to buy it up. It's really interesting for me because I have a company that is sovereign, family-owned, that does that final transaction. And we are the cashiers of the space industry when it comes to data. 
Well, you know, you're you're going to make yourself so open to VC targets after this podcast because we have at least what 10 people that listen to this podcast and they're all going to be calling you i think they're all going to be going there's steve talking crap again i wish you'd <laughs> shut up you know they've been after astrosat for ages i've stubbornly refused to kind of give in and i may regret it i may regret when i'm knocking on their doors for a job <laughs> no 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 steve i mean they're all going to be looking at the tax bill coming down the pipeline after covid and they're going to be we got to call Steve and park our money in his company. Well, they can park it in the garage for a while. I'll see how I feel. <laughs> I don't know, guys. I mean, it's not, I'm not a genius at business and stuff like that. We're just a really human facing company. And in being a human facing company, we've managed to transact and stay alive and grow steadily. So, I mean, I'm not a business genius. I don't really know how that world my my right hand man my best friend fraser who's our coo he knows how that world works but i don't you know i just get mouthy and sing songs and somehow people pay money into the tip jar <laughs> yeah and i i totally get that business model when we started terametric the the whole idea was we're going to work with our friends we're going to do the things that we enjoy and that we like and we hope someone pays us to do it yeah i love that it's the happiest time. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, we try to look at the industry as a place that we want to be forever, not a transactional marketplace. You know, it's what we enjoy. It's what we love to do. And I can really hear that that's something that that comes from the heart for, for you as well. It's an industry that, you know, there's something about the space industry that just becomes part of who you are and you can't shake it even if you wanted to. Probably like the music business. Absolutely. I think it comes from the catharticism of i think that's the right word the catharticism or the cathartic feeling you attain when you solve a problem and the best part of it in the space industry or in the earth observation industry and certainly for us is when we're solving problems that are for real good and i mean good stuff like your parents are proud of you everybody loves to come to work <laughs> you know we've done forestry pro sdgs you know we, we basically treat them as the posters up in our office we follow the sdgs the challenge is that that kind of busking don't make much money and there was a huge burst of money was stuck into the downstream business to chase the un sdgs and it was all grant funding and grant funding's grand but it's a it's a rug that's going to get pulled from under your feet damn quick so you form these relationships and it's not sustainable. And that's, you know, beyond trying to look after my my crew of 30 and our future and the industry, the thing that kind of gets me out of bed is trying to find a sustainable way to do earth observation for good. So we're making a decent bit of income out of commercial contracts with big companies and a few governments, but... We've worked on deforestation projects, rice paddy flooding, food security issues, maritime pollution. And in doing that, we've formed these amazing relationships with these beautiful people, and none of them can afford it. So somehow, you know, if I can get beyond my white album and not break the band up, my next band is going to be utterly focused on sustainable funding for the earth observation 
industry, me and AstroSat, if I can, of course, to do these kind of big goals that nobody's got the money for. That's going to be tricky. I might end up in wings rather than the Beatles. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm, maybe I'm a man. <laughs> they get away with that. But the rest of them, Mullock and Tyre, no way. But do you not think that, I mean, so that's got to be maybe one of those kind of twilight messages that I would, that Terrametrics, that you guys want to kind of promote. You, you'll have all done work on the SDGs. And I bet you did that work you built something great and then there's no money to pay for it. You know, finding a way to secure that from a credit-based system, a CSR policy, some kind of sustainable world foundation philanthropy, that's going to be something you guys think is cool, right? Well, unfortunately, Andrew doesn't come into work unless someone writes a check. Oh, (laughs) I got three kids to raise. (laughs) no in all seriousness i i think the reason we all get up in the morning is to solve these types of problems and those of us who who have been in the earth observation business and the space industry for a long time you don't make it a long time unless you're actually getting up every morning to solve problems otherwise it's it's a transactional lifestyle and i don't think that those of us who have been in this business for a long time have ever really seen it at that it's a passion for the industry, it's a passion for solving problems. Yeah. I think we're right there with you. Yeah, well, stick with me, and I'll stick next to you guys. I think, you know, Space in 60, when it's 10 years old, I hope we're talking about some breakthrough transactional philanthropy that we came up with. I really hope we are. Well, I hope we get you back before the 10-year anniversary. I hope you're back long before then. This has been a great conversation. (laughs) Yeah. So far, yeah. Thank you. I'd love to come back. Yeah, I'm sure you'll make it. So far, yeah. So he's he's probably not expecting much of us for the next few minutes, Andrew. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just I've run out of Jack Daniels. <laughs> and I'm out of scotch. So that sounds like a great segue into either getting a refill or maybe letting you finish up your evening. I think you need a sound bite where you hear the popping of a cork and the refilling of just one shot. Yeah, the glug, glug, glug. Let's take it down this path. You've given us like more of your time than any guest has ever given us. So either you've finished the Jack Daniels or maybe something interesting is really happening here. But this has been one of the the best, deeper conversations that we've had for this podcast. But I'd always like to know, as we get to the end of these, what like what's the most exciting thing that you see happening in the space industry today? Wow, there's a question. Okay, I'll split it up. So I'm not going to comment on the upstream because I'm not in that right now. Right? I'm just not in that. And it, nobody could deny that the way that we're starting to have civilian missions into space is not a great thing. So that's obvious, right? I'm not going to comment on that. My answer is split into two. For me, personally, I am itching to get back out in the world. But AstroSat has always been a traveling band, a touring band. And I've been stuck in the great beauty of Musselburgh in Scotland for way too long. So I, you know, I, I told you I'll be the first at Edinburgh Airport on that flight to, to Boston, coming to see my friends in Washington, in Huntsville, stopping off in Nashville. That personally is, is what I'm really excited about is getting back out in the world, 
We've got some trips to ASEAN coming up. I just want to see all these people that we can do good for as soon as possible. It's quite short-termist because of the pandemic, but that's really exciting for me. The bigger picture is what I said. It's finally the Earth observation industry or some or a few companies, certainly AstroSat, I hope, is one of them, actually starting to make some real value in money and transacting what's happening in the upstream. And it's starting to flow into a sustainable business. And then that inevitably will solve that beautiful dream of the kind of SDG type approach. So those are the things. So what excites me about space moving on is for me, I've got to get over to you guys. I've got to get traveling again because space should be shared with everybody. And then I would love to see someone finally, as in us, make a success out of the downstream application. Well, downstream is what it's all about. And I, I really hope that you have all of the success in the world. And I would like to invite you that on your way to Boston or on your way to Washington, you have a direct flight right out of Orlando. Make your first trip to Orlando, come see us, then head on to Washington, D.C. and Boston. And we'd love to, to have you here and over, over a scotch and a Jack Daniels, figure out how to solve the rest of the problems. Gentlemen, I would I would adore that. This has almost been like watching one of those old holiday movies when you're waiting to go on your vacation. <laughs> this is what it's felt like. I feel like I'm kind of across with you guys. I've also promised my my son I'm taking him to Disney World in summer. So I might have to ask you to find me a gig if things don't go so well. But <laughs> either way, I'll come and see you. And I really have to thank you. I think it's a great podcast. And it's lovely to just have a wee fireside chat and, you know, I've even had a cigarette. Don't tell my dad. <laughs> well, tell all your friends about Space and 60. And we can't wait to have you back and have you for a visit. And always feel free to drop in. Even if you're crashing the party, we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. That was a great chat with Steve. I mean, I, I can't believe his story, the journey that, that he's taken to get here. Talk about fun. Yeah. I, one of the things about Steve that I really love about the life and the lifestyle and the business that he's built around himself, he referred to his company, the I think 39 or 40 people that work at his company as a band of misfits and working in the muscle shoals of the space industry and rebels. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that we see about new space that's just totally unique are the rebels that are just making it happen, solving some of the world's hardest problems. And, you know, I, I really loved hearing Steve's perspective on it. You know, he wants to solve the problem first. And, you know, I think his narrative was that, you know, solve the problem first and the money will come. That's what everybody hopes, I guess, at the end of the day is... You solve the problem, then the money will come, pays the bills. But at the end of the day, it, it's it's also about enjoying the work and solving those problems while you're enjoying that. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting, too, to hear his background, both as a musician and a physicist and a space industry entrepreneur. And it's it's really amazing to me. You certainly hear often that you see a relationship between the interests of people who are mathematicians or physicists and their love for music certainly wouldn't have put a Scotsman in Nashville, but 
<laughs> I can't imagine Steve on stage at the Grand Ole Opry. Maybe it was a different kind of music in Nashville, but who knows? Yeah, who knows? I think I can picture him on the stage there. It's it's, uh, it's quite the venue, but you're right. You know, it's it's funny how many scientists find passion in art and and vice versa. It's it's incredible, and you can't deny that relationship. Exactly, and so. You know, Steve, I think he mentions, you know, a couple of things that are are really exciting as we see the pandemic starting to come to an end and we're starting, although we're not quite there yet, it's really great to see that the industry is in motion again. So not just doing business, but really starting to come alive and we're starting to see new entrepreneurial activities bursting onto the scene again, new companies starting up. But I think that rebellious nature of the new space community and in solving problems differently than space has for the last 50 years, I think is, is fun and unique. And I can't wait to see what comes next for Steve and his team. I agree. I can't wait to go make the next leap. Thank you all for joining us. I think this was one of, one of our greatest shows, great conversation. And we look forward to talking with all of you again. Thanks for joining us in Space in 60. Thanks all. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks. Space in 60.